This audio is from the Axis Church and is from our sermon series, The Gospel of Matthew, Following the Unexpected King. For more information about the Axis Church or its mission in Nashville, Tennessee, go to theaxischurch.org. Let me pray for us and we'll dig in this time together in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Jesus, um, Lord, uh, we certainly need you, your presence here this morning. Lord, I, I believe that you are with us. I believe that you are for us. And I believe that you're going to help us. And so, Lord, uh, I, just, I just pray for any distraction or hindrance to what it is that you would, uh, Lord, through your power, accomplish this morning. I pray against any distraction, um, Lord, anything that would cause us to, to not truly see what's going on, to truly hear what's going on, and for our hearts, Lord, to, to truly experience you this morning. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, and move in our hearts this morning for your glory and our joy and the salvation of Nashville, Tennessee. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's, let's begin here in uh, verse, we're going to look at one and two here. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, we do learn in Leviticus 19 that there were edges of the fields, the crop fields that were left so that the orphan, uh, the widow, um, those people who were strangers to the covenant um, would have an opportunity to, to eat off of what was around the edge. So God gave this law in order to, to show his compassion for those who have not worked and, and yet they received. And that's important as we, as we move forward here in our time. So that's what they were doing. They were, they were most likely picking from the edges of the fields. Now, this is, a, this is on the Sabbath, okay? This happened on the Sabbath. And so this is referring to the fourth commandment of the original Ten Commandments that God gave generously, compassionately, graciously gave Moses for the people of Israel to have and to obey in order to be in relationship with God. And uh, this is Exodus 23, 12, referring to this fourth commandment. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman, and the alien or stranger or sojourner may be refreshed. Okay, so the Pharisees took this one law and they made several other rules in order to enforce this one law, this one commandment. And then they built a lot of other rules and laws around that one. And, and then they built even, even more layers of laws and rules around those. And so what they had done is they had created so many laws that in, even in this particular one, where plucking a piece of grain while walking through a field on the Sabbath was considered harvesting, reaping. They saw when the disciples picked one piece of grain off the top of one of the plants there in the field, they threw a flag because that's the equivalent of 12 days work of plowing in the field. It's the same thing in their eyes. It seems absurd, but that's not the beginning of it. For instance... 
they said, okay, we know from Exodus 16 that you can not travel on the Sabbath. Okay. The Pharisees then asked the question, what is traveling? We need to define what traveling is so we make sure that we do not do it. Is it literally not walking at all? No, that's impossible. So what does it mean? Well, they developed the idea of a Sabbath day journey. So they felt like it was okay to walk up to, but no more than 1,000 yards. Okay, put that in the rule book. 1,000 yards is not traveling. So here's the way that they took it. You could, you could take a piece of rope and lay it across the street. And if that rope across the street is adjoining your property, then you can start 1,000 yards from the edge of that street because you can consider that whole street part of your property because the rope is fencing your property. So technically, you could walk 1,000 yards to the edge of the street, put a piece of rope down, and walk 1,000 more. And if you're really clever... The day before the Sabbath, you could go and take some food and put it in a friend's home and then go back home, get up the next day, walk a thousand to your rope. You're still good. You haven't sinned yet. And then you walk another thousand to your friend's house where your food is. And if you ate a meal there, let's make a law that if you eat a meal somewhere, you can consider that your home for the day. Okay. So then we can go a thousand yards beyond our home. So if you were clever enough, you could walk through Palestine in one day, halfway through Palestine in one given Sabbath without sinning. Is that not absurd how many layers of rules and how he- heavy that is? I wish that was all, but there's so much more. I'm going to point out a couple more of my favorites that I learned about this week. The law prohibited carrying a load. So what's a load? Let's say a load um, is clothing. So you can't carry a jacket on the Sabbath, but you can wear a jacket. So if you were to take your jacket from one room in your home to the other room, say you wanted a blanket to use it as a blanket, you would have to wear it from one room to the other and then take it off. Otherwise, you are sinning by carrying your jacket from one room to the other room. Again, this is absurd, but there's so much more. The law prohibited work, but what's work? Well, let's say a man's out walking and he spits. Is that work? Well, it depends on what happens to the spit, okay? This is true. If he spits in the dirt and it makes a slight furrow, then it's considered plowing. True story. And so that's the equivalent of plowing for 12 hours in the day is spitting in the dirt, makes a little furrow, that's considered work, that's a sin. But if you spit on a rock and nothing happens, then you don't sin. So according to their rules, you could be a devout, obedient Jew so long as you knew how to spit and where to spit on a Sabbath. But can you imagine living under this burden? Could you, I mean, this is absurd. And this is, I just unpacked three rules that they had, three traditions, three laws. I learned this week that they have 39 categories of laws, not 39 laws as to what work is on the Sabbath, 39 categories for what work is on the Sabbath. This is the, the unbearable, 
heavy burden and load of moralism and legalism that was plaguing the Pharisees. And I would say we're not outside of being affected by this in the church today. When our preferences are elevated to that of cultural norms and when people no longer do what we think they should do or behave the way that we think they should behave or or participate in things that we think they should participate in, when we have a sacred, secular dichotomy in our world, in our life, in our worldview, we become a lot like these Pharisees. So as I'm reading this and studying this, knowing my past as as a very good, upright Pharisee in the church through my childhood, I feel like it's easy to laugh at these people. But personally, I'm reading this and I'm looking in the mirror because this is exactly how I lived the first roughly 20 years of my life. And it is heavy. It's heavy on one hand, but on the other hand, it's beautiful because you can leverage your self-righteousness and feel superior more superior than others. So it's sin upon sin. It's my story anyway. But this is the heaviness, this yoke of legalism and moralism that the Pharisees carried, and they wanted other people to carry the same burden, the same weight. And this is the heaviness that Jesus, by grace, wanted them and all of us here today to rid ourselves of and to take on the lightness of his yoke, His yoke, his burden that is easy because he did all the heavy lifting of obeying the law perfectly for us. That is at the heart of the gospel. And so here Jesus is not actually breaking a Sabbath law, but one of their traditions and rules upon rules upon rules. And he's calling out these Pharisees' hypocrisy and their misinterpretations of the law. And in doing so, Jesus is making himself out to be the lawgiver as well as the interpreter of the law. Capital I, the interpreter of the law. As he speaks this truth, Jesus is emphasizing his divine authority over the Old Testament sacrificial system as well as over the law itself. His laws are light and easy for those who believe in him. They are good for us. But the laws of the Pharisees are burdensome. The Pharisees added requirements to the law and they missed the exceptions to the law, opportunities to show compassion to those in need. And so to explain this to the Pharisees, Jesus responds to them in this way. Look at verse three. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Now, this is from 1 Samuel 21. Everyone knew this story. Everyone was super familiar with this passage in 1 Samuel. Basically, it went like this. David had been appointed king over Israel, but he was hated by Saul who was acting as king, and Saul wanted to kill David. So David fled to the priestly town of Nob in order to save his life. But when David arrived, he was hungry. He had, he had nothing with him. He was, he was needy, very needy. And he came to Ahimelech, and he asked him for food. But the only thing that the priest Ahimelech had was the bread that was offered to, to God in, in the tabernacle. 
the priestly bread. That's, that's all that they had, which even in using this story, Jesus is pointing out that someone had to work in order to produce, produce and bake the bread that was needed. So there is certain work that has to happen even on the Sabbath. I think is, is, is Jesus is getting that in here at the same time. It's not all about David eating the bread, but it's about even those who have to work to prepare it. So Jesus is really getting, he's, he's, he's doing some work here with these, with these people, which is interesting. Jesus doesn't dismiss these men. He cares enough to engage them, even in their disagreement and ignorance. He's choosing to, to speak into them and to share truth with them and to engage them and use illustrations that they're aware of. He's not just ignoring them. As, as easy as that would be, right? But he's unpacking. This is grace. This isn't Jesus judging as much as it is him being compassionate to speak truth. So this, this bread that, that he's referring to here in 1 Samuel was only to be eaten by the priests according to Leviticus chapter 24. But when Ahimelech, when he sees David and his need, he generously, graciously, compassionately gives David all that he has, which is the bread, the consecrated bread. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus adds to this very same account of this story in Matthew 12, he adds this phrase recorded by Mark, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's the point that Jesus is making here that the law, the laws governing the Sabbath were made for our benefit and not to hurt us or make life difficult. By beginning his point with the words, have you not read? Now that, if, if you're a Pharisee and you hear anyone say, have you not read, man, that's offensive, that cut you to your core because you knew everything. Like you, you didn't, there was nothing else to learn. You knew it all. You were just there to teach others, other mere mortals. You felt so superior. So to hear these words, Jesus was, was getting at their heart and he, he wasn't implying that they haven't heard, but he was stating, using this phrase, that they did not gain the true significance of what was going on there in 1 Samuel 21. This, of course, would have ruffled their feathers as he says these things. If they truly had understood what was going on there in 1 Samuel with David and the bread, they would have known that their entire approach to the Sabbath was fundamentally, foundationally wrong because they weren't able to explain such passages as 1 Samuel 21. It didn't hold up with the Old Testament that they swore their lives by. It, if David was right, then his need at the moment superseded the normal rules that would have restricted the use of the consecrated bread for the priest. So if David was right, then his need at the moment was more important, and it was God's opportunity through Ahimelech to offer grace and compassion for his need. So the Pharisees should have known that the law was given to help people and not hinder people. And they had made it such a weight. So Jesus continues here in, chapter, in, in verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane 
the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. That, I think, is where things change. We'll unpack that in in just a moment. So Jesus' second point here is, is one only Matthew records, and Matthew is particularly a Jewish gospel where the temple is paramount in its importance to the Jews. The temple was it. The temple was the place. There was nothing like the temple in all of Jewish culture. It was in and of itself utterly different and divine. It was unique. It's important to grasp as we move here. So this here is, Jesus' point is unpacking the work that these men did on the Sabbath. He's saying, according to you all, through your misinterpretation, the priest worked on the Sabbath. And so they profaned it or they desecrated it. Very graphic language. He's saying they destroyed and could care less about the law because they burned incense, they changed the bread of the presence, they offered a double offering. Like these men worked, and according to you, they were sinful. Which Jesus is essentially saying, yet they weren't sinful. That, that's not the point. But according to your misinterpretation of the law, you would even call these priests who were found holy and acceptable in their sacrifices and how they gave them, you would say they're unacceptable. Your calling ruined what God considers good, is is Jesus' point here. He's showing that some work does take precedence over Sabbath rules that they had created. The Sabbath points to Jesus. The Sabbath, as he says, that there's something greater than the temple and that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath concept points to Jesus Christ and the rest that he gives. The rest that he gives from the impossible task and weight of good works, of being good enough, of of, of keeping this list of things, of, of not doing anything over here on this bad list of things, of keeping these man-made rules. And he's saying these things in the face of these Pharisees who had become professional rule makers and burden givers. That's what they devoted their lives to. And here when Jesus says something greater than the temple is here, I believe we need to unpack what they would understand as the temple is. In context, there was nothing more important, perhaps the scriptures, the scriptures and the temple, two paramount pieces of Jewish culture. The temple was the means of joining sinful humanity to the perfect God. The temple joined fallen man with the holy God. The temple joined creation with creator. The temple housed the very presence of God. And saying that he was greater than the temple was Jesus saying that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That he himself is God's presence. That he is God in the flesh. That he is the greater, the new way to God. That no longer will the temple and sacrifices be necessary. This was a profound countercultural claim, a radical claim by Jesus. 
The temple served as a liaison between sinners and sinless. And Jesus is saying that he is the new, greater, perfect liaison. He possesses and is the very presence of God. Here, Jesus is clearly claiming to be Messiah, because that's what Messiah does. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be even greater than the Holy of Holies, greater than the contained presence of God. Radical for this audience to hear Jesus say these things. I imagine, as I was studying this, I imagine the Pharisees like could not believe their ears. They, they were on the edge of their seats. They're, they're, they're listening to every word. They're watching every piece of body language. There's the lump in their throat as they cannot believe what's happening. It's, they're, they're, they're feeling awkward for Jesus, if you've been in a social moment like that, where you're okay, but you just feel like, ah, oh, man, that guy, what's going on? Like there would have been part of that as they're looking at Jesus claim to be such an epic piece of history, wondering what's going to come out of his mouth next. And then verse seven, you have, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, this compassion, this loving kindness. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. If you understood this, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now, back in Matthew 9, Jesus referred to this again. He uses this phrase from Hosea 6, 6 often. The point in using it here is, is, him, is Jesus conveying religious living without compassion is irreligious. That's the point, even in context of Hosea 6, Again, religious living without compassion is irreligious. You're missing the point. God's desire for his people is, is changed hearts, hearts that show mercy, hearts that are compassionate towards others, that are giving to other people's needs in their helpless and hopeless situations. God's, God's desire isn't for his people to be rigid rule followers that, that creates some sort of judgment in the hearts of his professing followers. And this is what was going on with the Pharisees. So Jesus is hitting these, these guys head, head on here. You see, the Pharisees' understanding of what their God-given religion, their, I mean, God gave the law, he gave this religion as a means of experiencing friendship with him through covenant. It was, it's, it's gracious and compassionate the, the whole concept of God interacting with us is radically generous, radically compassionate, radically gracious and merciful. And it's as if their understanding of this compassionate, God-given religion is, is all about, it's so warped that the only way Jesus is able to make headroom here is to chop away at their laws upon laws, to, to swing away here at their traditions and their misinterpretations in order to get their eyes off of themselves because they were so conceited in, in their uh, religiosity that he was hacking away here at their laws and their rules in order to make them vulnerable enough to see their need and see him as the one who came to satisfy what they can't do in trying to be good enough. But it's like they were deafened to this. You see, at the heart of God giving the law to the Jews was compassion and mercy and grace. Yet these leaders who were over this religion 
are expressing judgment, continual judgment, and not being slow to wrath, not being compassionate and gentle and loving and kind. Law is the rule rather than compassion. And Jesus is teaching that in his kingdom, to be a citizen of his kingdom is to understand compassion and love. Even, I think it's, it's 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, you can do all these wonderful things and if you don't have love, it's nothing. That's at the heart of Hosea 6. That's at the heart of, of this passage here with Jesus in Matthew 12. All the law-abiding, all the rule-keeping with a hardened, callous, cruel, selfish, stingy, stingy heart, that's not obedience. Now hang on every single word that Jesus was speaking here as he certainly has their attention. He says this, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. <laughs> He's the creator of the Sabbath. He's the interpreter of what that means to keep the Sabbath holy. Jesus isn't challenging the Sabbath law here, but the Pharisees' interpretation of it. As Messiah, he authoritatively interprets every single aspect of the law, and here he points out the Pharisees' blindness to the actual intent of the law, to the heart of the law, to what the law was meant to do and produce, which is to bring rest, comfort, and well-being. And the irony of this <laughs> is that these men work their fingers down to the bones to not work. They work so hard at not working on the Sabbath. They had created such a burdensome job. Out of every Sabbath, you would get up and you'd have to work harder on the Sabbath than any other day of the week. That's not the point of the Sabbath. You're missing it. They're missing not only the Sabbath, but more importantly, they're missing Jesus. They're missing the Messiah. They're thinking that they're getting it by keeping all these rules, but they're missing Jesus in trying to be religious. This is extremely relevant for us today. Just because we're part, just because I preach a sermon doesn't make me a Christian. Just because we're part of a gospel center, Jesus exalting and singing church doesn't make us a Christian. Just by being a part of an access community group doesn't make you a Christian. Just by getting baptized, it doesn't make you a Christian. Just by following all the rules doesn't make you a Christian. Just by following all the rules with a smile and a compassionate heart doesn't make you a Christian. Only faith in the risen Jesus Christ saves you. Only faith in Jesus Nothing else. There is no hope in anything else. In keeping list, in staying off the bad list, doing all you can to keep a check from coming beside your name on the board, nothing saves except faith in Jesus Christ. And the Pharisees here, and I'm afraid so many of us in the church are at risk of the same thing, they're missing Jesus because they don't see that they need him, because they're so good at feeling religiously advanced and prepared. 
there are two significant claims that Jesus makes here. He claims that he's the greater Sabbath, and he claims that he's greater than the temple. In, in claiming that he was gr- the greater Sabbath, he was pressing these men in on their man-made rules. He's pressing them in on missing the heart of the law. The command to rest on the Sabbath was a means of enjoying God and experiencing a lighter day, not a heavier, more difficult day. And they totally miss this concept. And they create something in creating these laws around the Sabbath. They're creating something that God did not intend and that God did not create that sort of Sabbath. That wasn't the heart behind why he gave it to us. The purpose of the Sabbath was to show mercy to people and even animals by mandating a regular period of rest from hard labor. And if observance to that particular law meant making a hungry person hungrier by not meeting their need, you've totally missed the intent of the law. You've totally missed the purpose. Jesus declares he's Lord of the Sabbath. He is the rest the peace, the break that we're looking for. He is the rest that the Sabbath was pointing towards. He is the greater Sabbath. And in him and him alone, the human heart can experience true rest. The Sabbath says, work hard to rest. But Jesus says, I've worked hard so you can rest. And then moving here to greater than the temple, he's declaring that he is the liaison between sinful man and the holy God. Without Jesus, the human soul is hopeless to stand before God in his magnificence, in his perfection, in his sinlessness. But with Jesus, the human soul has no happier place of contentment than in the presence of God. Jesus is this greater temple. The temple says, come here to get to God, yet Jesus says, I've come to you to bring you to God forever. And there's nothing you can do to mess it up. The temple says, you better get clean before you come in here. And Jesus says, I've become dirty to make you clean so you can stay there. That's the beauty of the gospel. I believe that Jesus says these things in part because it's true and we need to hear them, but also because he knows that intrinsically woven into every human being, in every fabric of who we, who we are, is a desire for rest. It's as if we build our lives to not be inconvenienced. At the heart of that is our desire for rest, our desire for for true peace and comfort. And we look in a number of places for it, and they cannot permanently, eternally satisfy like Jesus can. He offers what we're looking for. But also... There is within us all a desire, whether we realize it or not, to be reconciled with our creator. It's it's in the heart cry of every human soul to be restored to its creator. And there we'll find rest. 
here today, Jesus is offering us, he's promising us two things that each of us in this room desires with every piece of who we are, though we may not realize it. But he's offering us and promising us rest and reconciliation with God. And both are found, perfectly found, in Jesus Christ and in his finished work on our behalf. And as we scatter today, may we be very aware of the counterfeits that are so abundant in our culture, promising that they give what Jesus can only give. It's the enemy's great plan to offer as many counterfeits that our gullible souls will latch onto. They're numerous. The truly wise and the, and the truly happy heart is the one that sees and prizes Jesus as better than anything else, it, that, that sees Jesus as more authentic than any counterfeit the enemy can produce. That's where true contentment is. That's where true life is. That's where true peace is. That's where true rest is. And you will not experience rest and peace and contentment and purpose and identity until you have come to Jesus, taken off the yoke that you're carrying to matter and to have purpose and take on the identity that he gives you as chosen, as son, as daughter, as recipient of grace, no longer a keeper of the rules. My prayer is that you would see Jesus as this and that you would run to him. Just come, you don't have to run, just collapse on him. Just throw yourselves onto Jesus and say, God, I, I, don't, I don't know it all, I don't get it all, but, but that rest, that, that comfort, that peace, I, I want that. That reconciliation, I want to experience that. I don't, I don't know all about it, but I want that. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll, I'll give you rest. Just come to him. Don't figure out how he's going to give it, how it's all going to work out. Come to him. He will bring the change that's needed. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your help this morning. Lord, I, I do pray that you would answer that desire, Lord, that we would see you as better than, Lord, that we would be very aware of counterfeits, Lord, that, that we would have tunnel vision when it comes to you and the cross, Lord, that we would become really good at, at, at discerning counterfeits and, and repenting of those and, and, and running straightward onto you, Lord, please, please help us and guide us in this, Lord, I pray for those in the room that are are really good at being good and the risk that's at such at place there, Lord, that's at work there. Lord, I pray that you would set them free from, from the list and that they would trust in you and you alone and not their efforts that cannot save. Lord, I pray for those who have been Lord, running from you and running from the church and running and they don't even know why on earth they actually found a place here to, to gather on a particular Sunday. They don't even, they don't, what in the world? God, would you love them? Would you, would you let them see who you really are? And would you give them, Lord, the faith needed to pursue you? Lord, be with, be with us, the majority of us, as we, man, we have taken the bait of so many counterfeits. 
Lord, we, we're latching on to so many things, so many good things, but so many things that aren't you. And we're finding hope there and we're finding contentment there for a season, maybe. But Lord, show us the, the foolishness of that and the sinfulness of that and bring us to the cross. Let us repent and let us learn more and more that only you, truly only you can satisfy. God, do a magnificent work in your people today. And let this spread. Let this grace and compassion spread throughout our region and change, change our region. God, do these things. In Christ's name, amen.